You're listening to the Broken Mirrors podcast, providing a unique set of views in the larger foreign policy and intelligence and security milieu. This episode, the operation of intelligence in a democracy. And now here are the hosts of Broken Mirrors, Mark and Tom. Welcome to Broken Mirrors, the Canadian affiliate of War on the Rocks. In keeping with a good War on the Rocks tradition, Tom and I are sitting down with a good bottle of Wind River Merlot and taking the second of our two hard looks at the concept and reality of strategic intelligence. Well, here we are sitting around the table again, talking about intelligence and carrying on from where we uh, ended off our last cast. And one of the things that we really brought out in that cast is that people of all sorts want some form of certainty for the future and are willing to spend considerable time and effort to achieve that. Governments in particular are willing to spend billions in the search for certainty, or more realistically, the illusion of certainty or predictability for the future. When that illusion crumbles, which it inevitably does, then we have commissions of inquiry to determine what went wrong, that auto de fe function running around in there. But this sets up an interesting problem for people who are actually working in the field. And this is a, a form of a dov- double bind for our divination class. In order to be part of the intelligence community today, especially at the strategic level, the analyst has to exist in a state of cognitive dissonance, a classic double bind, as Bateson would describe it. You have to believe in the dogma of the community, which is to say you have to believe, or at least pretend to believe, in the doctrine of future predictability and certainty. But at the same time, if you have two neurons to rub together and know anything about probability theory, you know that it is impossible to accurately predict the future and predict discrete events. So what do you end up with? Well, interesting. couple of points to feed off of there. The first one is the whole business of education and intelligence. How do you get people to think about it? And currently we see a lot of people trying to move towards the idea of certification, superior intelligence and education in intelligence. And I would argue this is all good stuff. The only problem is we are still lacking a working theory of intelligence, be it at the tactical and operational level, we're getting there. The strategic level, we're not really there at all. So if we were to compare ourselves to the field of aviation engineering, Uh, we'd be in a bit of trouble. You wouldn't dream of qualifying or certifying an aviation engineer unless you had a working theory of flight behind it. Nonetheless, we're trying to move ahead on certification and education without a working theory of intelligence. It's a struggle. I'm not saying we should stop trying, but we should be clear about the idea that this isn't necessarily going to produce truth at the end of the day, or at least not yet. If you look at a lot of what we're pushing today or what the oracles of today are pushing, currently we're running into the whole business of total information awareness, big data, data processing, uh, this sort of thing. None of these things have really been tested theoretically, uh, but yet we're spending billions in blind faith thinking that the latest oracle, the computer and big data, is going to provide truth. Unfortunately, like the oracles of the past, such as reading bird flights or pig guts or talking to virgins at, uh, you know, volcano entrances or something like that. I'm not sure they're going to produce truth any better than our oracles have in the past until such time we get a working theory of intelligence. 
You know, one of the uh, key things about having working theories, and if we look at the history of the development of technological areas, so chemistry, biology, etc., one of the things that happened is you had an emergence of a body of knowledge originally, and that was not usually governed by theories. You know, you'd sort of get these broad, overarching things that might or might not give any, you know, predictability in it. But it, you would have th theoretical models that were basically emerging as applied. So we look at uh, Roman engineering. It's probably one of the best examples. You had no theory about how to build roads. You just had a lot of pragmatic experience. You had no theory about how to build bridges. You just had a lot of pragmatic experience. Those roads and bridges are still in use today. And I think that's where we are when we look at tactical intelligence and when we look at some of the operational intelligence. We've got a large body of experience knowing what works and what doesn't work at those levels. Where we need the theory is to expand it up to that strategic level. And as soon as we expand to the strategic level or the grand strategic level, we come face on, smack, smack the head is the only way to describe it, up against one really crucial problem, who decides. So we have this problem in our general society in the West where we say civilians, which means politicians, decide on how intelligence will be used. But politicians are frequently not trained in the use of intelligence. Politicians are selected, if you want to use a Darwinian term, in an arena which is designed to go out and get votes, to sell themselves, sell ideas so that they get votes, they get elected. This is great. It does involve certain intelligence functions like polling, but it doesn't involve intelligence functions where they have to deal with cold hard reality where they cannot manipulate an image. So the question then becomes how do these analysts who are sitting there and they're they're having to say we believe that the intentions of this group are this, we know their capabilities are this, we believe that you need to look at this very seriously run smack up against a training of, well, we just run advertising campaigns and we change their perception here. We've got a basic divide going on in here. And this gets us back to the question of how do the intelligence agencies, how do intelligence analysts train politicians to answer the right questions? It's a question of communication. It's a question of a bunch of things, and clearly communication lies at the heart of it. Well, before we get to him, though, uh, I'm actually going to talk a bit about today's guest because he bridges these worlds quite successfully. He's got operational experience on the ground. Uh, he's had a lot of experience working at uh, the junior level right up to the senior level. He's dealt with politicians, doing knowledge transfer with them. He studied intelligence theory, and he's involved in a lot of public outreach with intelligence. Uh, General, retired, Dr. Jim Cox, may actually provide some of the keys to the future here. Uh, first off, what makes him interesting beyond his 34 years of military experience, six operational tours in the field, plus three operations with NATO, is the fact that he did a lot of work within military intelligence, particularly his role as Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff to Intelligence at SHAPE, which is NATO. Military intelligence is an interesting training ground, perhaps because it is the best defined field of intelligence. It has boundaries, more or less, 
Uh, and a lot of the time you can determine success or failure in military operations. Not only that, there's the issue of scalability. Jim has got experience as a company commander uh, at one level, and he's got experience working at NATO headquarters sort of at the other end of the spectrum. More importantly to our discussion, he's worked on the flip side as well as I mentioned. Working for our parliamentary library here in Ottawa, he was responsible for briefings to a whole gaggle of politicians who were members of parliament, senators, and things such as that, and specifically on issues of defense, national security, and intelligence. So he's learned how to talk to these folks. Uh, and I don't say that in an offhanded way, that's a real hard piece of work. Somewhere in the middle of all this, in his spare time, Jim also managed to get a PhD out of the War Studies uh, Department of the Royal Military College, looking specifically at the issue of intelligence theory, something he started to think about when he was at NATO and was trying to figure out why a lot of this stuff just wasn't working. The other uh, little fun thing about Jim is he's also the vice president of the Canadian Military Intelligence Association uh, with a specific focus on academia, education, and outreach to the public. Before we had Edward Snowden, we actually had Jim Cox asking the question, how do we explain intelligence to the people, how do we explain it to them in a positive way, because intelligence should be thing as a, as a positive thing, and what do we tell the, the common person, what do we tell the citizen, more importantly, what do we tell the taxpayer about where their intelligence dollars are being spent. So Jim is an interesting guy in the sense that he can cover everything from the operations at the junior level up to operations at the senior level. He can cover intelligence from, let's say, a NATO point of view to a parliamentarian's point of view, and he can do all of this with a theory background. Uh, a strong guest, and we're going to get to him later, and we'll see why this is important. Okay, well, Tom, this brings us to an interesting question, because we're talking about a lack of a theory of intelligence. And what we really need to do when we're talking about a theory of intelligence is distinguish between a theory of intelligence operations, which we actually do have uh, a lot of elements of, and a theory of intelligence itself. Well, Mark, I think it's worth noting at the outset that the theory of intelligence, or certainly the study of a theory of intelligence, is a relatively new thing. There was a bit of work done by guys like Evans Pritchards in the 1930s, but realistically nothing really gets started to the 1960s in terms of a ongoing pursuit of the study. And it's really only into the 80s and 1990s before it gets going as an academic discipline in an academic field. There was a lot of study done, but most of this was on process, cause and effect questions, and issues concerning strategic surprise. And then some of the interesting insights were just sort of war as I knew it kind of biographies. However, there was no grand theory of intelligence produced, notwithstanding the efforts of guys like Greg Treverton, the Rand Corporation, etc. But I think the real theory work starts in the 1990s and the 2000s when we realize in order to effectively study the field of intelligence, we have to move outside of it first. This means looking at intelligence as a form of knowledge, as Sherman Kent might have described it. In other words, this means looking at epistemology and it means looking at knowledge management, two words which will scare a lot of the practitioners of intelligence. It also means looking at the human mind. How do we perceive the world? How do we sense it? How do we understand it? How do, how do we communicate what we perceive? And then how do we communicate that to our superiors, to our lords and masters? It's clear now that we are pattern-based thinkers 
rather than the rational actors we thought we were. And this has huge implications for how we generate intelligence, how we store it, how we process it, how we communicate it. There's also the rather sad fact that human beings tend to be pretty good at denial, and we tend to be pretty good at bias. Uh, a lot of times we will refuse to accept new truths for reasons which may be cultural. Some of them may also be hardwired into the brain, which means it's even harder to beat them. Also, concurrent with this activity has also been an understanding, certainly at the, the theoretical level, if not at the practical level, that all knowledge is contextual. In other words, in order to understand something or something that someone says, you have to understand where they were from, why they said it, who they were speaking to, etc., etc. Miscommunication and misunderstanding are still common. And this occurs almost always because there is a certain cultural bias or a set of assumptions which at the end of the day are false. So at one level, I think we need to understand where are we going? Are we going to Afghanistan? Are we going to Iraq? Are we going to Syria? We know we need to understand how that society works. At a more practical level, I think we're still seeing a lot of people reject that. They don't want to get into that because maybe it's too hard. As we've said before, thinking is hard. So let's get back quickly to our guest who's going to be joining us very shortly, uh, General Cox, and let's look at his definition of intelligence as sort of an entry point here. Jim thinks that intelligence is a good thing. He thinks it needs to be out there discussed in the public realm, and he thinks intelligence should be a peer of operations. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? His definition is quite simple. Jim thinks that intelligence is reasoned foresight for competitive advantage. And he thinks this definition can work across all fields of intelligence within the military, also within the business community, also within government. Broken Mirrors. We're here today with Dr. Jim Cox, retired Brigadier General uh, coming out of the Canadian Forces. Uh, Jim's CV is uh, so impressive that I'm not going to go through it now, <laughs> but if you want to see it, we do have a link through on our site. Please feel free to look at it. Uh, Jim has spent the last, oh, I'd, I'd say, what, about 15, 18 years uh, thinking very yeah. seriously about intelligence matters. And this came out of when you were uh, involved with uh, SHAPE and NATO, looking at intelligence. Mm -hmm. I know you did your doctorate on it, and I remember mm -hmm. uh, hearing a couple of your uh, presentations <laughs> on that. So I was wondering, Jim, could you uh, start off by just giving us a, a bit of an overview of how your thinking is running around on intelligence now? Well, I guess as I see uh, the whole area of intelligence as a as a field of knowledge, and not only a practice uh, in the narrow way that uh, the people are talking about it. I'll, I'll start by the view in the militaries of the world, and, and as well as pieces or departments of the government too. Everybody who practices intelligence in government and the military have a tendency to see it only as far as the boundaries of the military and the government. Um, as I've carried out research on this, I have come more to see intelligence as more holistic, wider, and um, grounded in the human intelligence process 
as well as another area that people haven't spoken about a lot in talking about intelligence is artificial intelligence, which in the, I guess in kind of a spectrum, is kind of in the middle of human intelligence um, and the military or the government intelligence because people in artificial intelligence are fairly open about saying we are trying to apply the processes of human intelligence in machines and computers. People in the military and the government haven't acknowledged that. They are kind of operating in a world of their own. So at the end of all that, I'm coming to see um, that that there is one fundamental form of intelligence that applies across the the spectrum of human intelligence, artificial intelligence, and the kind of intelligence that we hear hear about today in the newspapers and on television in the in the militaries and the governments of the world. So when you say one fundamental form underlying it, uh, mm -hmm. do you have a, a rough idea what that form is? Or? <clears throat> um, I'm playing in the area of uh, the, the human in, in intelligence process. I'll go back a pace. A challenge in all this uh, at the very start is trying to understand exactly um, the composition or the, or the nature or character of intelligence. And I kind of, I, I use a, a metaphor of a flame. I see it, but attempting to kind of describe what that flame is, is very hard. So trying to describe intelligence is tough. At present, I've arrived only at the point where I think it's an abstract. It's like smoke. Um, intelligence may be even only a, uh, a judgment. Um, we're passing a judgment as to whether an activity or a person is intelligent or not, or whether their activity is intelligence in there. It's very interesting in the field of uh, psychology. A, a lot of academics and scholars in psychology have examined and studied intelligence, but invariably all they are doing is measuring it. They are, are, are measuring what in their minds is the is the product or the behavior that is resulting from intelligence. And I haven't seen anything where they actually are going to intelligence itself. So when you talk about the human process of intelligence, that's looking at the human being as, let's say, looking at the human being holistically. You're a force, you're out there moving around. Uh, you have a sensor package in t inherent in your body. So you've got eyes, you've got ears, uh, you can sense the wind, you have a sense of smell. Not only that, we have pattern-based thinking, which has allowed us to watch a number of things happen in the past, which then informs our decision-making in the present. So one of the examples I use in this area is to say, look, I walk up to a busy street and I decide to jaywalk across the street. So that was a decision right there in itself. I'm going to take a risk and jaywalk contrary to what the law tells me to do. But I look at the cars and I see them coming and I make a decision. Okay, I can see uh, a small Honda way off in the distance. I know it's moving too slowly. But I see a motorcycle coming and I can tell it's driven by an 18-year-old kid and I can hear the engine is at maximum effort. So I'm not gonna jaywalk in front of that bike. I'm gonna wait till it goes by. Is that what you mean by the human process of intelligence is basically how we as humans uh, survive in our world and you're saying that's the fundamental process we should be looking at and then build everything from there. And that is part of it, absolutely. Um, 
again, a broader view of, of that. And the, the way I have come to, to describe intelligence or define it is that I describe intelligence as, um, as reasoned foresight that enables advantage. So in the example that you had, crossing the street, that that's right, that's all in there. Uh, but in the in the view I have, that in advance of that, that you have an agenda of some sort, an aim, a purpose, that is is going to happen across the street. So that you are carrying out activity and behavior in a manner that is achieving advantage in achieving the agenda or purpose that you have. And and so you are going, uh, as you described, you are, are crossing the, the street and all that uh, in all those ways, and, you're, and your mind is going through the process of avoiding the cars, avoiding the, the guy on the motorbike, et cetera, all to, to achieve the advantage of getting over and carrying out the purpose or aim. As well after that you are across the road, there is a, a continuing process of reasoning that's going on that you are making a judgment as to whether that was a good idea and, and whether you are going to actually attempt to, to do a crossing of the road at the same place in the same way in the future if you have to do this again. So there's a process of uh, review and evaluation that's going on, and the purpose of the review and evaluation is to make a judgment on the advantage that you had or not. So I went running across the road. I thought it was a really good plan. I was running really hard, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is going to work great. I'll get across the road, no problem at all. Just as I slip on the ice that's on the median of the road, mm -hmm. I stumble for a couple of seconds, and then I just barely make it across the road. Learning has occurred. Yes. Uh, it didn't necessarily cripple my mission, which was to get to the other side of the road, mm -hmm. but good heavens, it certainly affected it. So if, if we're looking at a holistic human approach, something founded in the way humans process information, um, I think, you know, an interesting approach, and that's, that's a model of intelligence that could work whether it's a battalion commander in the military or a security and operational risk manager in a central bank mm -hmm. uh, or financial institution or whatever. So let's look at uh, the flip side of that for a second, which is to say human beings, after they've been alive for a while, after they've been a battalion commander for a couple of years, tend to form a view of the world. They've got their own paradigm of how things work. It appears that we are perhaps even hardwired to have denial. If we sometimes see new information that doesn't fit into our paradigm, doesn't fit into our understanding of the world, or the new information runs contrary to my successful accomplishment of my mission, I'll ignore that sometimes. We have that process of denial. Would your model, would your theory of intelligence work well? So like, I don't know, look at it like a battalion level where you've got a battalion commander and a DCO and an int guy. Would your model sort of assist us in getting around that denial, which is such seems to be an almost fundamental human uh, concept itself? Yeah, the um, the idea that you have there, I think, is one of a number of impediments to the process of reasoning in a person. I mean, all of us are human, and we all have um, these hiccups along our reasoning. Uh, and, and these aren't anything that are are new. 
and frankly, I don't, I don't know that there's a way of avoiding them other than education and to be aware of them. Because I know in the training of uh, intelligence analysts, they spend time identifying these stranger twists or influences on their analysis in the impediments in the reasoning process. And so that, as I say, I think is only an impediment in the reasoning process. Um, and as long as you are aware of them and are conscious of them, maybe you just have to learn to identify them and to work around them. If you have a number of people that are working in the analytical staff or cadre, uh, quantities of people, quantities of the brains applied to the problem is a way of of handling that, I think, uh, because the chances of everybody having the the same impediment is smaller. It's less, but it's not eradicated. A diversity of opinions is a strength itself. There's another thing that may be coming out here, and it does show up in some of the literature coming out uh, dealing with uh, analysis uh, coming out of the CIA, for example, and that's types of logic systems used. So if if we are looking at, take your comment about the quantity of brains looking yeah. at something, that works very well in a deductive logical system where we know with 99.9% .9 accuracy we're able to mm. predict stuff so we can get into the details on it. The example of you know, NATO looking at an old Soviet uh, thing. We have the doctrine, mm. we've seen the training exercises, right. we know what they do. You can apply deductive logic there fairly well. Uh, if we're dealing with inductive logic, however, we're now running into a, a subtly different problem. We're not dealing with truth in the sense of this is how they will operate based on this and this and this. We're now dealing with we think they will probably operate this way. So hence we get a lot of the language talking about it is probable that or it is likely that and then attempts to apply probability numbers to that. And then we've got the third type which is abductive lo logic where we're dealing with even less data, less uh, material on that. And humans as a species have a tendency to use abductive logic first. Then when we repeat things over time, we tend to move more in towards the inductive logic and then finally that gets formalized through communication systems to become that formal deductive logic. So maybe uh, one of the things that uh, we may want to be looking at is can we formalize those as different processes? How do they interlink together? And how would your uh, how would your thinking on this run? Yeah, that that is uh, is a very interesting aspect of this whole thing. Um, and as you are talking about that, I'm saying, right, all all that is true if you think of a person because as a baby. You don't have a lot in your head or your brain, but as you get older, more experienced, you, you, as you described it, you move through the, uh, the types of logic. Uh, I don't know right now how that would apply um, to a social organization, the military or government. Uh, I'm inclined to say it, it can't start out at the basic sort of level because that these organizations are, are social entities that have been in existence for a while in, in spite of the fact that, that, that individuals or the people in them have changed over a generation or two or three or ten. Uh, 
but the organization is mature. Now, I say that talking about a, a country that maybe is as modern as Canada or a modern state. Uh, perhaps your spectrum of development would apply to a new state or a rudimentary state or a, a failing state who's just starting out. Um, and, and that would be only on the basis of the amount of resources and capacity available. Well, let, let me toss mm. out a, a counter scenario. Mm. Um, I would argue that the same process operates uh, when you're dealing with cross-cultural communication. So, for example, if we send a military unit into Afghanistan and we're dealing with you know, 18 to 22-year-old mm. guys down on the you know, who are doing the basic mm -hmm. interaction. They do not know the culture. They do not know the language. So they are very similar to that, you know, infant trying to figure out what's going mm -hmm. on. But at the same time, they're also somewhat disadvantaged because they know how to act in their own culture mm -hmm. and society. So they will interpret that based on Canada or the United States. doesn't really apply in Afghanistan. So that same process of learning going from I'm not quite sure what's going on and going through the, okay, I think it's probable that to, okay, I finally know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, may well yep. apply it there. Would. It, um, it would, and that would, and in that way, as you're talking, yeah, I could see how that would um, apply to the intelligence staff who every time you go on a new operation, it's new, so you have to start from scratch. And the, and the acquisition of all that um in, in my mind, in my model, is research, which is part of the intelligence value chain. Um, and it's how that is applied in the, in, in, in the search for advantage, where you start to get into the intelligence aspect of, of that activity, I think. See, one of the other things when you were talking about mature states or mature mm -hmm. organizations, one of the the hallmarks and characteristics of mature organizations is they have very good training, very good ways of transporting knowledge, transporting information, transporting skills to other people in the organization. So it's inherited from generation mm -hmm. to generation flowing down. And it would be interesting to see how your model taking that into account would shift training for let's say, rapid deployments, because we know now that we're getting into much more rapid deployments. So, okay, when we, uh, if, God help us, we end up in Syria, mm -hmm. how are we going to be able to do briefings that will be able to get people out of that, I'm thrashing around like an infant stage, and quickly into the probability, and then into the much closer stage. Yeah. Have, have you got anything to Well, the... Um I would say what you're talking about is the process of training, and, and, and that certainly is a, a segment of the overall intelligence activity. Um, the challenge of training, however, has, has been around for a while, and I mean, I remember as a young officer heading off on, on missions of the UN on peacekeeping, I mean, everything was new <laughs> any place you went, and there was a... Uh, there was a uh, rudimentary attempt to educate us in the in the culture of the specific area that we would operate in. 
but I and I'm just pausing here because I wasn't in the intelligence staff in the unit at that time, but I'm imagining that obviously the intelligence staff acquired information on the, on the mission area as they are doing now. Uh, the challenge of educating everybody today, though, in a, comp a complex kind of a mission area like Iraq or Afghanistan is a lot harder than going to, to what was in, in, in the old times, a mission of the UN, which was, was pretty straightforward. Let me just jump in with one thought here. One of the key words you used sort of here at the start was holistic and then sort of human processing. Uh, and then you sort of say, look, you know, we had the intelligence staff look at Cyprus or uh, the Golan Heights, wherever we were winding up, Sinai Desert, uh, and they would interpret this for us. As would not a holistic process of intelligence, such as you're talking about, include something like a symbolic anthropologist, a linguist, uh, perhaps a historian, uh, whatever. Are these the kinds of people that we need to integrate more? Or if we were to train people from square one in what you would refer to as sort of a holistic human process, would they not naturally turn to those kinds of people as they're deploying, uh, drag them along with them, read them, uh, have them on speed dial, uh, have them on Skype or something like that? Uh, so that knowledge could be integrated more. Because right now we tend to focus on, yes, the military mission, we do X, Y, and Z, away we go. Don't confuse me with all this you know, anthropological stuff. Uh, Whereas it strikes me that in a mission like Iraq, Afghanistan, or like we said, Lord help us, Syria, with the mm -hmm. peace talk starting now, uh, it's critical to have that stuff. And if you don't, you've lost the mission before you got there. Absolutely. And more. Uh, I'm thinking of today, of course, we hear the term whole of government. So in my mind, when you hear that term, uh, that implies everybody in government is working on the team. And that has come out of Afghanistan. I think we're all smarter on that. Um, and even in control of our borders at home here, there is a whole of government approach and it is really integrated at the working level. I mean, it's working great. So in the future, um, if we are going anywhere on, on a mission, I don't. I can't see that it's only a mission of the military anymore. It's it's a Canadian sort of mission, a mission of the government of Canada, of which the military is a part, and others. So, in the broad intelligence enterprise in Canada, which intends to include all the various organizations, RCMP, CSIS, CSEC all the intelligence enterprise ought to be engaged. All the intelligence enterprise ought to include anybody and any uh, organization, any piece of equipment or technology that acquires information and, um, and has knowledge. So in your example, yeah, I would hope there would be a pool of uh, professors of a variety of pursuits, anthropology is one, um, that would know stuff about our mission area and be included in this acquisition of information and the reasoning and the analysis in the intelligence process, all for the purpose at the end of producing a product that enables advantage.
on the ground. So this is leading to a, an interesting observation. If we're moving more towards whole of government or whole of state, um, and I'd be inclined to go more towards whole of state with government being actually lead yeah. element on it, but not sole element on yeah. it, then then that would imply that one of the things that would be necessary for this to work would be common processes, common languages across all of these different organizations. And we can certainly see from the press in the U.S. that you know, military versus state uh, or versus other organizations in there. And I think we've got a, an almost tribal conflict between various organizations right now. So how could you see, uh, let's take Canada because we're a smaller nation, how could you see Canada developing that common language, common understanding so that we could all work across different government departments, different agencies, and even different private industries. Yeah. We're coming in. here, um, here is one of the aspects where it's real easy on paper, but it's extremely hard in practice. And this is why I play with the term Canadian intelligence enterprise. And that term is intended to include um, everybody who's working in intelligence in Canada uh, and it presumes a, a purposeful activity aimed at the production of reasoned foresight that enables the government at all the levels, the federal, the provincial, and cities, to carry out uh, advantageous action against anything that is a threat to, to Canada and the security of Canada and Canadians. At present, um, if you have a, a, a picture of the government of Canada and all the intelligence organizations and staffs in it, you will have a myriad of organizations, RCMP, CSIS, military, and you'll also have a number, it's a large number of small intelligence staffs that are part of departments. And all of these, and I'm pausing here because I think in quantity, I don't know exactly, but we're looking at the area of, of 25 or 30 individual intelligence entities in the government of Canada as a minimum. Um, all of them have, have been sort of uh, uh, produced or arrived in a, a fashion that is the bottom up. It all happened after the uh, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and we were all into this terrorist uh, agenda and a number of, of departments had wanted intelligence staffs to do a variety of things. You have uh, intelligence staffs uh, who are worried about airplane travel or rail travel or pipelines or criminals, border. And this all came kind of started at the bottom and percolated up. All of that uh, happened in the absence of a, a national or a federal plan or model for intelligence activity. So what we have now are a whole handful of people that are trying in various ways to kind of cooperate at, at the working sort of level. Uh, constitutionally, a challenge in all that, of course, is that in the Constitution, each minister is is responsible for his or her area of responsibility and department. Um, and, and that is imposed in the Constitution. 
And as a consequence of that, there are various pieces of legislation that uh, prevent the the easy transfer or movement of all all sorts of information. People are working at that. People understand it's supposed to be more of a cooperative and uh, and and a more holistic activity, but we ain't achieving that yet. Yeah, I mean, we still have a long way to go. Half the battle, I think, is is this idea of getting into the mindset and accepting that there is an overall holistic intelligence enterprise and and that implies if you do that there has to be a uh, an intelligence kind of policy at the federal sort of level that that has a model for this thing and then flowing out of the policy there's a strategy strategies because intelligence in various activities isn't the same um, but but uh, important in all that is that at some point you would then have a common set of practices standards of performance standards of accountability standards of activity and and that if I carried this a mile up the road and I got ahead of myself I would I go to the point of saying we even need a, an institute of higher education in intelligence, uh, and, and this would be a national academy of some sort that would teach the forms of intelligence, the military intelligence, law enforcement, criminal uh, transportation. But there, it would establish a roster of people involved in the enterprise and not only a smattering of people spread out around in a community of practice. Just kind of a funny thought here. Uh, <laughs> the three of us sitting around the table here all have a certain amount of gray hair, uh, which is clearly a sign of uh, long-standing intelligence and experience or the fact we're just getting older. Uh, I was on board a warship a while ago, which had just come back from the Gulf, and I was really stunned uh, by a comment from the ship's captain. Uh, we were talking about how he interdicts different vessels, uh, how there could be as many as 5,000 different vessels move through his area of interest in a matter of a week. How do you sort through that and how do you identify the ones you want? And one of his comments was, well, I don't really know, but I let the kids play with the software. And he says they're able to sort out the regular traffic from the different traffic. And he says, then we're getting pretty good. And he says, I let them do this right here on the ship. And what he meant by the kids, of course, were his, uh, his uh, what we would call junior NCOs. And they're actually going into some of the ship's computers, adjusting the software, creating their own spreadsheet system in order to make it work there at the front. And I sort of laughed and thought, oh boy, if we'd suggested going into a weapon system or a sensor system, when I was doing that on board ship uh, as a junior NCO, we'd have been court-martialed for doing it. Um, is it possible or are we hopeful that perhaps a younger generation that has grown up with an iPhone in their hand and an iPad in their pocket uh, and with Google, um, are they better at integrating knowledge across boundaries? Do you think maybe there's some hope for us just because the kids growing up today, and by kids I mean people, you know, 2021, 20, uh, are better at this than we were. Um, well, they've got a more holistic view. So is there an advantage to the fact we have young kids coming up? Well, and, and that uh, example, as, as you are, are laying it out, I'm saying, well, there's an example of the holistic idea of intelligence because it, it involves the human intelligence process. It involves artificial intelligence, but particularly in terms of, of the Navy, so of course who have a lot of computers on board to do all sorts of things. 
um, and it still is military or government intelligence. In terms of advantages of the generations on the way, I must admit, and, and this I admit maybe is part of the plague of getting older, but I don't know that um, the, the the folks who are coming along um, uh, are going to be, obviously are going to improve a lot of things, achieve a lot of things, as um, as all the generations in the past did. I think there is a natural advancement in talent and education and knowledge here that that will happen. And for sure, the kids that are uh, who ar arrived in the world with a cell phone in their hand are, are going to be more um, able to do that than all of us were at that stage. I mean, I remember as, as a young infantry officer that the state of, of technology in the command post was a sheet of plastic over a map and you were able to do the writing on it and, and there was a corporal one day who shone a light on the edge of the plastic sheet uh, he sh shone on the edge and all of a sudden all of the, all the marks on the plastic shone or glowed I mean that was amazing but, but that is stone age today um, all that is fine, and all that really resides in the world of of artificial intelligence in the technology. I still think there is um, it depends on the innate human intelligence in each of them, as it always has. And at the other end, I still think we need the training and education of people involved in intelligence because to apply all those spreadsheets or, or to take all that information and extract the meaning and the probability of, of what will happen in the in the way of an adversary still is going to be a, a challenge as it always has been. So to fall back on some of my knowledge management experience, your argument would be something to the fact that technology is good, it's there to help, but technology should support but not supplant the genius of the human mind. And it's upon the genius of the human mind that you're basing your sort of holistic human processing uh, intelligence process. So if you've got a you know a kid coming up who's great with uh, computers, he can integrate knowledge across boundaries, that's good. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's still that innate in intelligence human process that's gonna save the day or lose it if it's not there. Yeah, well, and, and I take it a step further as, as well when you say the genius, of course, I think, of the of the writings of of Clausewitz and his idea of the genius in a commander that um, if all else is failing, a genius in the commander is going to that carry the battle. In in your example too, the the, the people who are involved in the process um, are great and bless them all, but the idea of this. Uh, this holistic view of intelligence means that st still is that there still is the primary role of the commander who decides and has to act. So for all of you who have spent time as an in intelligence officer, you know that um, a specific issue in this whole topic is that you can have great information, outstanding analysis, and come up with what probably is going to happen in a very accurate way, but if you don't have a commander who applies that, or even if the commander is smart enough to apply it and has a degree of genius, if the organization 
isn't trained or evolved or capable of doing what ought to happen. Um, at the end of this, the intelligence, the advantage is or is not attained. This this is bringing up something that uh, we've talked a bit about so far, which is the difference, if we look at intelligence uh, using a very base level biological analogy of sensing what's going on in our environment, bringing it within the organism, shifting our actions in response to that and our desires to interact with the environment and then going back out again. It, it brings us to the, the question of almost internal versus external sensing because we could talk about the military. Well, part of the military's external environment is, say, Department of State or our allies mm -hmm. or other groups. If we're talking whole of government, then it's other nations. If we're talking an individual company, it may be other companies in the same unit. So we have this scalability going on on what is internal and what is external. But it also brings us back to a very cultural thing that I know you've talked about before, which is spying is bad, spying is evil. Uh, and that that cultural meme has literally caused problems with the very idea of intelligence in some ways. And we can certainly see that now with all the fights about Snowden and the NSA, with all the questions about spying on Canadians with CSAC, all the other questions popping up on there. How do you think that the that almost negative concept of uh, spying, which is really a form of sensing and mm -hmm. hence a form of intelligence, has impacted the positive forms of intelligence and the positive uses of intelligence? Wow. I would start by saying I think, and I apply this to our, our present time today, I think everybody ought to take a pause, have a valium, and not get excited about all these um, adverse interpretations of this of the state of intelligence affairs in Canada or any place else. Um, I'm a fan of intelligence as a process. As a starter, I think it's normal in life, as we've been speaking about. In terms of a corporation or any other organization, it's it's one of the processes they have to, to employ and use in order to advance, to make a profit, uh, to get advantage. So as you have a personnel staff, uh, a supply staff, a finance staff all doing their process, and an intelligence staff. As part of the, uh, in in the research I've done, as a, as a, a fallout of this holistic view, a part of which is, is looking at how humans operate in the brain, how the brain operates in the process of reasoning. A specific issue in there is that we see the intelligence process in the brain is a peer of the other half of the brain that carries out the operations. Um, so on that alone, in terms of how intelligence organizations are manifest, there we s seem to be at odds right now because intelligence practitioners are not a peer of the operators. Whereas if we follow this, the model and the research through, I'm talking about this holistic model, there would be a new kind of a mindset. Intelligence staffs would be the equal and peer of the operators who are subordinate to a commander, both of them. 
Um, so that is is one aspect of this. But I, I, and the purpose of explaining that is only to say this whole intelligence thing ain't anything terrible. It's normal, rational. Everybody has to have it. Organizations have to do it in some sort of manner. It's been adversely interpreted, I think, and has become a pejorative uh, exercise and discussion, mainly because over time, and, and this isn't anybody in particular, but in the movies, in in the literature, you've got spies or saboteurs or whoever that, that are all classified as being intelligence, and and they aren't intelligence. The spying spy as a word is is a, a shortened version of espionage which is is espionage it's, it's looking at stuff you're not supposed to but that is only part of the gathering of information it's one small bit of the overall process at the end of the day i would offer you that intelligence isn't a problem for anybody it's how it's applied so even if we are spying on everybody in Canada, and I fully understand the 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 um, aspects and the worry of privacy, but in uh, as a generic point, acquiring information isn't the problem. It's how it m might be abused um, and and used or applied at some point. I think um, it's only a, a modern kind of phenomenon now that um, the whole issue of intelligence almost isn't in the in the conversation. It's the issue of privacy and our civil rights, and being played up that uh, that our government is looking at us in that way. Another half of the problem is that our government today. Uh, the, the personality and character of the government is there avoiding explaining any of that. And they are allowing all of their opponents or critics or the media to sort of play on this invasion of privacy animal and carry on and, and talk about that without any other kind of frank or a mature explanation of why and how it's happening. And frankly, a lot of it isn't happening as it's it's reported to be happening. And as you know, in this area, uh, it's complicated. It's not the way it's reported, but there are, are complications and details in, in terms of how all this is acquired or the aspects of surveillance. And, and there are laws involved here. Um, but it's complicated enough, I think, that as I said at the start, I think we all just need to pause, <laughs> take a volume here, and in some way have a a public and, and, and mature sort of a discussion about this, including our friends in the government who have got to be allowed to, to, to explain more about how it's going on. Well, that that in some ways just brings us back to you know your comment earlier about let's have a, a whole of government or whole of uh, state institution for studying intelligence and that's really almost the popularization of that if we're going to have a mature national discussion about it we actually have to have people who actually have a rough idea of what intelligence is yes which gets us down to the interesting problem of as you've said you know our government and most governments actually mm. do not talk about it. They say, trust us. Well, 
I'm sorry, that doesn't work in this debate. Mm -hmm. So how would you see uh, going about educating average citizens about intelligence? Um, I'm pausing here because I was about to say I don't know that this education aspect is really part of intelligence. On the other hand, as as I was about to say that, I said, whoa, hold it. Uh, in the modern era, um, a lot of what happens internal to a state in a country is the confidence of the public. And the confidence of the public is is a result of and a consequence of educating them and telling them all about that. Um, and there are a number, well, a number, there are a couple of associations that are have come up over the the, uh, the past years, and the one of them in the military is the Military Intelligence Association, of which I'm a member, and it has has taken on an in intention to be a part of this process of encouraging the full and frank and open discussion of intelligence in public, with the aim of educating everybody. Um, and and the Military Intelligence Association has a conference each year which is bringing in sp speakers uh, from a variety of offices and, and levels of government in Canada here and abroad to have uh, a day of discussion on the broader intelligence issues. It um, Hopefully it will spread and and grow i mean it's it's a conference here in ottawa but there's an appetite i think across the other country to hear this or more about in intelligence as as a function a broad function let me just go back to an earlier podcast we did a couple of months ago sitting mm -hmm. in that chair you're sitting in right now in our studio we had uh, ian mcleod who's a reporter for the Ottawa Citizen. He's been doing the job for about mm -hmm. 30 years, and his focus has always been on national security, intelligence, terrorism, law enforcement, those kinds of subjects. And we raised the issue with him and saying, you know, is the media biased against the intelligence world or against the law enforcement world? And his view is, no, it's not. But he clearly understands why it looks that way. And he says, increasingly over time, when he goes to the government and says, look, here's a sensitive topic on terrorism or national security or Edward Snowden or spying on Canadians or whatever, he says he either gets total silence from the government, he gets a runaround, or he gets some boilerplate statement that says, you know, the government of Canada is concerned about privacy. Well, you know, good for that. But he says if he goes to other people in the discussion who are opponents of the government, they're, of course, willing to sit down and expound for hours as to why they're opposed to it. So he says the media comes out looking biased, not because the reporter is biased or the system is biased, but because the sole sources of information they can draw upon uh, are themselves biased. So he says you get one-sided reporting, and he points his finger at the government and says it's mostly the government's fault for this. So... We have governments now that are less willing to speak. We have opponents who are more willing to speak. Uh, does this mean that associations like the Canadian Military Intelligence Association or the Old Crows or something mm -hmm. like that have to become more proactive if we're going to get something resembling an intelligent discussion in a democracy? Um, absolutely. And, and this challenge of the a number of these associations uh, is more than only... Um, sort of wanting to do it. A lot of these associations, as as the Military Intelligence Association uh, was in the past, 
they really are have evolved over the years as uh, fraternal organizations. The people who worked at CSIS, having a a beer on Friday afternoon. The, the Military Intelligence Association used to be entirely a, a kind of a regimental thing. It was all aimed at the people, at the members who who had 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 a number of years of service in intelligence in their area. Uh, in the case of the Military Intelligence Association, it is the first one of these that has expressed the desire and intent to actually engage in the public forum for the, the, the purpose of encouraging a, a discussions and debate in a frank and open manner. Uh, hopefully others are going to follow. Uh, but of course, the challenge, if you do that, you are changing the character of that association, and not all the people who are in the association are keen on that. Uh, so you, there's a challenge of uh, inspiration and the leadership here to try and get this whole thing on a new road, which has uh, a broader aim. And of course, if you are going up the road of a broader aim and wider activity, you may need a new kind of a person or group of people who are capable to this because, as you know, having a, b a beer in one place on Friday and saying, yeah, I think that we ought to encourage a conversation in this is one thing, but actually having to carry it out and to do it and organize it on Monday is another story. So it's a change in how we think about the problem. Your job as a soldier at the end of the day is to serve. Mm -hmm. You serve the interests of the state and your specific skill happens to be the application mm -hmm. of violence in an organized mm -hmm. sort of manner. Maybe your job as a retired soldier, and not just yours, but everybody's, is to continue to serve the state, not in the intelligent application of violence, but perhaps the intelligent application of knowledge, uh, <laughs> which you've gained through sweat, blood, tears, etc., uh, etc. Just going from that, let me pick up on another word you used a while ago. You used the word peer, uh, and you were talking initially about the human brain, which is to say you've got two parts to your human brain. Mm. There's the thinking part that sort of thinks about stuff, and then there's the operational part that lets you move your hand or make a decision or walk or whatever. Mm. And they operate almost as peers. You would argue that within an intelligence an intelligence organization within, say, the military or within a financial institution, that peer relationship should continue. So that intelligence isn't seen as a function to be done by a junior officer or a junior NCO, but rather as a peer. So, for instance, in a battalion, uh, just we use a battalion or a brigade as sort of perhaps the, the proving ground for this. Right now we have a commander, subordinate to the commander's operations and intelligence and a series of other functions. Intelligence is always seen as the junior function, but you would argue perhaps that intelligence within a brigade or a battalion should be a peer organ, a peer individual to, let's say, the deputy commanding officer or something like that? Yeah, well, and it isn't only in the military. I would say um, in all organizations. I'll go back to the, the start point here. That if intelligence is as important and complex and uh, as critical as we all acknowledge and admit, on that alone, it should be at the level of the mind of a boss, a commander, a CEO, a minister, anybody in charge. So I would say that at the level uh, just under a leader, under the minister, 
under a general, under a CEO, there would be a principal appointment at the level of the assistant or uh, a deputy that would be the intelligence officer in charge of the intelligence enterprise in that organization. In the military, there is a habit that's been established for a long time that whoever works as a 2IC or a deputy kind of handles all of the administrative stuff and takes it off the shoulder of the commander. The the commander has to worry about uh, the battle and the days and the hours and the weeks ahead. So whoever's at the at the level of the deputy or 2IC is handling all this other stuff. I argue that the person who's the 2IC or the deputy ought to be the intelligence officer because if the commander or the CEO moves or is hurt or can't operate, is there a better way of uh, preparing a successor than to have them au fait and on top of and running the intelligence and knowing everything that's going on. Um, So I think, and in that way, it immediately solves, in fact, it eliminates a lot of the traditional problems we or challenges we've heard for intelligence staffs. Uh, acquiring the attention of a commander, having the, having the confidence and respect of the commander, rather than as a junior appointment or person who's coming in with a briefing, he, he now is talking to a person who is probably prepared or preparing to kind of operate in his or her absence. They're probably about the same age. They will have almost the same experience. Um, So the quality of conversation and the presentation of intelligence that's coming from a senior person, it's a whole new quality than is currently the practice. Jim, during our lives, we all have that little moment where something happens and all of a sudden we realize, oh my God, what I'm doing maybe isn't that good or maybe the organization I work for has some significant weaknesses. Uh, In 1994, uh, I was serving in Yugoslavia, the ex-Yugoslavia. NATO and the United Nations had agreed to a system whereby if a UN unit got into trouble on the ground, NATO would provide an airstrike to assist that unit get out of trouble immediately. The very first time this happened, uh, a battalion on the ground was under what appeared to be a significant attack. They called for help. The UN force commander agreed that this may be a good time to call in the airstrike. So the general called in uh, a staff and we all sort of sat around a room, in a t- around a table, and he said, look, as I'm speaking, F-16s are coming off the ground. NATO is going to provide the strike if I say yes. However, the area we're going to hit is politically very sensitive. So if I do the strike, I'm interested in the fallout. Does anybody have an opinion? And then he went around the table, G2, G3, and he addressed his political cell. Now, here's where I had that little aha moment where I realized something wasn't quite right. The political cell leader, a civilian, looked at the force commander and said, well, by the time we have a discussion, communicate with our peers, etc., etc., it's going to be at least 12 hours before we can get you an answer. And of course, we realized that once an F-16 goes into the air, the decision point is maybe 45 minutes and 90 minutes from now, the whole mission's over and it's history. So this gets us to the issue of sort of intelligence in a time of surprise versus intelligence in sort of a day-to-day kind of function. So 
if the staff sitting around that table, civilian and military, had grown up under a system, like a sort of a model where you're saying it's more of a holistic approach, it's more of a human processing approach, would the commander perhaps have got a better answer or a more immediate answer then than he would get perhaps now? Or would we get a better answer now? So I'm also thinking we could wind up in Syria uh, in a short period of time and we're gonna have the same problem something happens the commander needs to respond he can literally start World War three in Syria by making a bad decision so would your model provide better I'll call it surprise intelligence would it would it inform the commander better um, I would I'm pausing here because my my initial th thoughts are I wonder if if this is an intelligence issue the person in question you're talking about or the appointment in question you're talking about is a political advisor um, and it is a civilian and the and the appointment of a political advisor is normal and usual uh, now in the UN and in NATO always has been it invariably is either an it's a person of a, of a nationality that's the same as the commander or close to to the, the nationality of the commander in question. So, so at the point uh, that you have described, when the, the commander has, has turned to the political advisor um, and asked the question, if the political advisor at that point, he says, I'm sorry, I have to go and check, I would say it's the wrong answer. It, it's not what the political advisor is supposed to do. He should have advice. His ad advice at that point ought to have been, I think, uh, of a nature that is intelligence because the spirit of what he's, he's asking, the commander wants to know in a political realm as to what probably is going to happen if I carry on with these airstrikes. What Very much so, yeah. probably is going to happen amongst all those antagonists and the belligerents. So in that way, um, I would say the political advisor at that point in that example had failed to, to do what he, he or she ought to, ought to have done. And of course the purpose of this, um, this uh, reasoned foresight is to acquire advantage in the, in the situation. So in the, in the way that you've described it, I don't know if, if the commander had, had preceded his, his remarks or there was a wide knowledge of what the aim of the mission was because only if you know what you are, are trying to do are you in a position to know if you are, are or are not achieving any advantage. Well, funny you should say that. Much like the mission in Afghanistan, the mission in Yugoslavia sometimes appeared to be just muddle through and get to, get to the next day. Uh, which is unfortunate. That gets into the whole issue of strategic direction from politicians, but I don't think we're ready to go down that road right now. Um, speaking of Afghanistan, however, um, here's another question for you. You're advocating a model of holistic intelligence driven by the human process. So we've just gone through, uh, in Canada's case, something like 12 years of having been on the ground in Afghanistan from October uh, 2001 to the present day. And we're now in the process of withdrawing. We should learn lessons from that. We should extract the experience, convert that into knowledge, and use it in the future so that next time we go to do something, we can be more intelligent and more effective in prevailing in the mission. Again, would a holistic model 
lend itself to better absorbing the lessons from a place uh, like Afghanistan or Libya or Yugoslavia mm -hmm. or Iraq and all the other fun places we've been. Uh, and if so, how do you think it could enable future commanders uh, to hit the ground better informed before they start the mission? And I'm thinking Syria here again. Yeah, well, as a, as a starter, let, let me just ex explain how I see this the the application of this holistic intelligence idea um, and I'd put it in in this way uh, just as the people who work artificial intelligence are are building machines and computers that um, are based on the principles of the nature and structure of human intelligence I think we ought to construct and build our intelligence organizations on the principles of the human intelligence process and that's the among which is the point that intelligence is a peer of operations and everybody who's a 2IC or is a deputy ought to hold the intelligence role. Also in a person as you know if you think about it um, and here we are enjoying a glass of wine so as we are reaching for our glass of wine and bring it up to our, our mouth we're we are displaying a, a certain amount of intelligence because we are moving it at, at the right speed at the right place and tipping it at the right time um, part of that process our body is carrying out the role of a monitor of that activity our senses are going all the time, our, our glass is closer, our glass is closer, our glass is here, we're going to tip it. So there is a constant kind of a process of monitoring. So if we extrapolate that and put it into this structure of intelligence and social group, what it calls for that is not in place now, I don't think, is this constant uh, role of monitoring what's going on but because I think only through the constant monitoring of the application of your intelligence can you tell and determine if you are achieving advantage. It isn't a case of here's the intelligence I'm going to hold off and wait until the operation is complete to, to determine whether we have advantage or not. If you want to quote ensure advantage as much as you can ensure anything in life if you want to ensure advantage you have to have a constant sort of monitoring exercise a constant uh, review and evaluation of what you are doing uh, to see and judge and determine if you are on the right road and as to whether you are achieving any advantage along the way um, so in our intelligence organizations today I think what's missing is this constant um, process of monitoring for the purpose of determining advantage throughout. We are are wholly occupied with, or I'll go back a pace, if we talk about uh, oversight and review and evaluation today everybody immediately uh, falls into this other topic of conversation about the monitoring of our civil rights, whether our surveillance is legal or not. So we have a lot of review and oversight in terms of uh, of uh, propriety, whether it's legal or not. 
we haven't got an equal amount of enthusiasm, or we haven't any enthusiasm, as far as I can see, for the, the uh, review and evaluation of advantage, or the actual purpose of this whole thing is to get advantage, and we aren't examining that or staying on top of that along the way. So you would say like one of the greatest weaknesses right now, and this is being brought out by the Snowden affair, is yes, we're all focused on invasion of privacy and legal matters, but where is the sort of parallel or peer discussion, to go back to that term, that says, are these folks actually doing a good job? Are they helping us? Uh, do we need to curtail their activity? Because mm -hmm. what they're, the costs that they're imposing upon the state are not producing benefits or do we need to encourage them to continue doing what they're doing because in fact they are producing benefits so this gets back to the this whole idea of intelligence sitting at the table as a peer almost yeah. we need to have a more intelligent mature discussion about what we're doing and because we shove intelligence into the background and we don't talk about it uh, we suffer because of that yeah. well this point about the review and oversight or review and evaluation for advantage uh, does not have to imply all the time that we're explaining this in public. It's got to be internal. I mean, I mean, the people that are doing it have to know if it's working or not, as whether advantage is getting uh, acquired along the way. And all this is part of the of the military habit of having a process of gathering all the lessons, all the, all the lessons learned. Um, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of a uh, internal or it's a mini exercise in, in lessons um, each minute or each sort of hour or day or whatever you want to know how it's going and then at the end of it all you do need a larger exercise a, a more inclusive exercise as to whether the whole enterprise had, had worked as it should and the kind of advantage that you intended has in fact happened I think one of the things that that we often forget when we look at uh, questions of efficiency, did it do what we intended mm -hmm. it to do, is we don't often look at the byproducts of efficiency. So if we go back to uh, one that's shown up a couple of times, the writs of assistance in the 1760s going into 1776, and that actually led to the inclusion of the Fourth Amendment in the U.S. Constitution, be part of that unreasonable search and seizure, and that's what the writs of assistance were. They were very, very efficient at getting any material they wanted. But one of the byproducts was to totally infuriate a lot of the colonists on it. Even if you supported the idea mm -hmm. of, you know, yes, we want mm -hmm. to stop terrorists, mm -hmm. after some of your people and your friends and your family have all of their business records taken and never handed back, you're going to flip. And I mean, we've learned this mm -hmm. from the other side now being in Iraq and mm -hmm. Afghanistan, et cetera. So that almost unintended consequence doesn't seem to be added into the efficiency equation. I mean, if you want a biological one, does what we eat produce enough garbage to destroy us? Uh, right. Well, and, and that's, uh, I think, is a variation on the, the point we had talked about before. The actual acquisition of information isn't the problem. It's... It's it's the purpose of the activity or the intended abuse of of the exercise. Well, I'd actually expand it further that sometimes yeah. the acquisition of it may be the problem. Yes. Um, yeah. And I agree. you know the intention may have been go back to the writs of assistance to stomp out all of mm -hmm. these godless anarchists who were attempting to overthrow the crown. Mm -hmm. uh, 
that may have been the intention, which was at that time a perfectly moral intention. It was certainly legal. It was definitely within the purview of the state to establish. The method was so poor, mm-hmm. even while it might have been efficient, it constructed more. And, I, and part of the reason mm-hmm. I'm drawing this out is that we've seen similar debates in Afghanistan. We know it is very efficient to drop 500-pound and 2,000-pound bombs to take out some of these compounds where we have identified particular you know, high-value targets in there. Oh, oops, we hit a wedding party that was next door as well, or oops, we did this. So as Kilcullen writes, you know, we're creating accidental guerrillas. I think the Ritz of Assistance did that as a form of intelligence operation, the same way as dropping 2,000-pound aerial bombs was doing it in Afghanistan. Yeah, and, and that um, is a reasonable observation, I think, because in in principle there, in the intelligence, in the abstract intelligence way, the acquisition of that information is fine. It's the, it's the method of acquiring that uh, agitated everybody and antagonized the population. Uh, but in principle, as I say, that the actual in, intended activity in an intelligence way is good, but yeah, in a practical way, it, it wasn't uh, as smart as maybe it ought to have been. But I think some of that brings us back to the, the, the topic we were talking about earlier, which is education of the citizens. You know, why are we trying to do this? Should the citizens be able to speak up in a democracy and say, well, you know, we like the idea of you know, not having terrorists blowing things up all the time. We just don't like mm. you coming into our homes and taking all of our computers and information all the time. So have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Should should we be engaging citizens more? In at this? the end of the day, it's actually a trust relationship. Mm-hmm. I think if you look at my mother and her generation, my father, his generation, they tended to inherently trust the government. Uh, and if you look at polls and research and stuff like that, in the 50s when they ran the question, do you trust the federal government to do the right thing most of the time? The responses typically ran up in the 80% or 84, 85%. That the people trusted the government to try and do the right thing most of the time. And that's not a real tough standard, but it's probably a good one for a democracy. When you run that same question now and you ask Canadians and Americans and Europeans, do you trust the government to do the right thing most of the time? You wind up with poll responses somewhere in the mid-20s, which is to say we've got this uh, rather sort of downward trend where people really don't trust the government to do the right thing most of the time, even on simple stuff like healthcare, transportation, airports. When you get into a complex and sensitive matter like intelligence collection against the citizenry, uh, my suspicions are that poll number would actually drop even further. So my sort of thought is in order for a democracy to work, there has to be a social contract between the governing and the governed. uh, And that has to be a trust-based relationship where I trust the government to do the right thing most of the time, allowing for the fact the government will do dumb things on occasion. And that's fine because we all do stupid things on occasion. But... You know, if if that trust isn't there, then the system won't work. The people won't trust the government. The government doesn't trust its own citizens on occasion, which is unfortunate. Uh, And the system starts to fall apart. So getting back again to this idea of associations and ex-serving intelligence officers, ex-serving military officers and NCMs, um, is it perhaps a democratic duty for these people to speak out and try and explain and educate to the citizenry what they used to do in their former lives as soldiers, as intelligence people, whatever. Well, and that is, is very interesting because there's a pile of points of what you have said. 
Um, at the heart of this, I have a tendency to fall on the side of the responsibility of leadership and inspiring the public is, is a government responsibility. It's the leader. It's cabinet and the ministers. Uh, all this, all the question of whether the population is uh, trusting us anymore, in my view, in part, is because, as we talked about earlier, the absence of the government standing up in public in a, a, f a friendly and reasonable way explaining what they are doing. Um, and that th you had hit upon a point just in passing there that I think is true, and, and it isn't in intended to be as unfair as it's going to sound, but our government today, I think, has equated the public and, and the opposition as one and the same. Uh, and, and they aren't sort of trusting us or coming out as leaders of Canada and telling us what's going on, at least the idea. Now, I must admit that I don't uh, expect that our leaders or the government is going to tell us everything about intelligence all the time. Uh, for sure, in terms of sources and the methods, I mean that there are spooky activities that are going on on purpose, and it ought to stay that way. And the, and the public ought to accept there are certain activities and ways and means that ought to stay in the shadows because uh, it's to our advantage to have it that way. The problem is there isn't anybody in the government who's, who is telling us that. They are just allowing everybody to expect... Uh, Everything is shady and bad. Well, I think there's another thing that's coming out of that as well, and this gets back to government reactions or defenses, which is they're not talking about advantage. They're talking about potential disadvantage if we don't. And I think that's a very, very crucial difference mm -hmm. running around in there. If our government started talking about here are the advantages we get from this type of information versus... If we don't do this, the terrorists will blow us up again. Um. Let me just uh, sort of close this off. I got uh, a bit of a funny question for you. In 1992, uh, Canada was involved in opening the Sarajevo airport in Yugoslavia. To put it politely, it was a complex mission because a whole bunch of people wanted the airport open for political reasons, a whole bunch of people wanted it closed for a series of political and military reasons, and Canada, for whatever reason, wound up sending a battalion in to actually open and operate an airport. Most infantry battalions don't go around uh, running airports, but nonetheless, an infantry battalion wound up going into a contested area and running an airport. After this was all over, General McKenzie, who ran the operation, was asked by a reporter and said, look, you got a whole series of directions from the UN, from the military, from PMO, from foreign governments, from the Americans, and all of these directions contradicted with each other. How do you as a military commander carry out your mission when you receive contradictory directions? He thinks about it for a while and gave the, an answer which is true, although not politically correct, and he said, well, at a certain point, you just have to remember what is it you're trying to do, and then you ignore the commander, you ignore the command, you ignore the direction, and just carry on doing the best job you can possibly do. So, I ask the question, is it your duty as an ex-soldier to speak out about intelligence, to speak out about military policy? And your answer was sort of, well, you know, it really should be the government that does that. 
Well, here, folks, let's look at it. The government's not doing it in Canada. They're not doing it in America. They're not doing a very good job in the UK. So in the military, when something goes wrong, it's always the military that has to just suck up, move along, carry out the mission the best you possibly can. So do we carry that idea through? Is it your job now? Is it the job of the Canadian Military Intelligence Association and others to suck it up, do the best job you can, move into that gap and carry out the mission? And the mission is building trust between the Canadian public and the Canadian government so they understand what the military is doing, they understand what intelligence is doing. In other words, if the government's failing to do it, is it the job of guys like you to move into that gap and fill out the job anyway? Uh, I would say it's a question of responsibility. And the responsibility, I, in my mind, I'm clear on, it's the responsibility of the government. It's the responsibility of the people who are serving to explain it to the, the people of Canada. And they're failing. Well, uh, but it's, it's the responsibility yes. of, of the folks in the job now to do that. Concur completely. I, I mean, I was in the job in past. I was responsible. I'm not. It's not my responsibility. Uh, however, there are a number of us who who feel it is now our enthusiasm. We still want to help out. Uh, we want to be part of the program of helping explain this to people. We want to offer a contribution, uh, but it's not our responsibility. Um, I'm not expecting any pay for this. I don't expect any reward. I just, I like it. I find it interesting. I think there's a role. But we ought to be clear here uh, at the end of the day that this issue of responsibility is a biggie because at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of the commanders, the operators, to achieve the advantage because they're the ones who have established the program, the missions, or the goal. They are responsible. Okay, thanks very much, Jim. On a closing note, Mark? Jim, I really want to thank you for uh, the conversation. It's been uh, fantastic, and I'm hoping we can have you back again to chat about uh, some other stuff sometime soon. It's a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Broken Mirrors You know, Tom, coming out of that discussion with Jim, there are a number of things that have struck me as to what we actually need to do to get a proper theory of intelligence versus the operation of intelligence. I think we can start with one simple thing. We need at least three sub-theories in it, sort of like evolutionary theory. The first sub-theory we need is a theory of the mind. How does the human mind operate? How do we get information in? How do we get sensory information in? How do we process it? And then how do we perceive it and almost subconsciously analyze it? And some of this we have. We also need a theory of perceptions. Because one of the things you know as well as I do is that if we perceive something that doesn't match our assumptions, we won't see it half the time. The infamous uh, experiment with uh, fire trucks going by and everybody says the fire truck's red instead of it being yellow. So we need a theory of perceptions. We also need a theory about how thought operates, and this gets us back into pattern matching stuff. This gets us back into a lot of cognitive science. So that's the first sub-theory. The second sub-theory we need is a sub-theory dealing with knowledge management and the communication of knowledge back and forth. And in some ways, I, I'd lean a little more to the Marshall McLuhan uh, communication stuff on there. 
because what we really are talking about is we're taking knowledge, we're storing it somewhere, we're encoding it in that storage, then somebody else is trying to decode it, come out with it. And we know, depending on where you store knowledge, where you store information, what media you're using, that changes the perceptions coming out of it. So if we store it on video, it's one thing. If we store it in poetry, it's another thing. If we store it in audio, it's another thing. So I think we need a good theory of knowledge management communications. The final sub-theory, and this is one that's not talked about a lot, but I think Jim actually exemplifies a large part of it, is a theory of social morality relating to intelligence. So this comes out to some basic questions. Who has what responsibility? You know, I, I was reading an article that came out uh, in December by Michael Morrill, and he said the key job of an intelligence officer is to paint an accurate picture of a national security issue for the president so that he can make good decisions. Well, that fits in with the cultural assumption operating in most of the Western nations that intelligence is subservient to politicians. But there's an interesting point here. It is assuming a certain level of responsibility, both by the politicians and by the intelligence agents. I think this needs to be codified a little more so that we can actually research it. We know that a lot of strategic surprise and, it, quote, intelligence failures have resulted because the politicians have said, no, Nazi Germany would never invade us, quoth Stalin. So that responsibility is a key one there. We also have to look at another part, and this goes back to social morality. Any group has an absolutely key system of rewards and punishments for following those social roles. We don't seem to actually have that right now in a lot of it, and I think we need to build that out. Well, it's interesting you bring up this issue of social morality, because this is something uh, Jim and I were talking about offline. One of the problems that intelligence has as an institution is that it's often perceived as something bad, something sneaky. Uh, if you go looking for books on intelligence at the bookstore, they're often under the title of true crime or something like that. Intelligence is about reading other people's mail, some people suggest. Whereas at the end of the day, intelligence should be thought of as a good thing. Intelligence should be seen as a good thing which sits next to operations. It's the peer of operations. Nobody would suggest that the proper thing to do is close your eyes and then cross the street. Everybody argues you open your eyes, see what's going on, then you cross the street. So I think that's a key point. Intelligence needs to be sort of converted from something bad and sneaky that we do in back rooms that are lined with lead to something which is good, which is done more in the public view. Certainly we need to keep sources secret. We need to keep methods secret. Nothing wrong with that. Everyone agrees to that. But it needs to be more public not just in the military, but also in the security industry, in government, within business, and interesting enough, within social organizations as well. Even NGOs that are trying to feed starving orphans in the field need intelligence, and they know it. So at the end of the day, intelligence needs to be more in the public realm, not less. Intelligence needs to be more in the universities taught through the education system. Ultimately, I guess what we're trying to say is it's a good thing to make intelligent decisions enriched by foresight rather than trying to react in the dark, which is what we often wind up doing now. So this sort of brings us back full circle to Jim's definition of intelligence or how he approaches an intelligence theory. Intelligence needs to be reason, foresight, 
for comparative advantage. And I think that's where we need to work from. Broken Mirrors. We're back at AM Confectionery. Mark and Tom are wrapping up the latest Broken Mirrors episode. So, guys, that brings us to the end of another interesting podcast. Mark, how would you wrap it all up? You know, Abby, trying to sum up this uh, particular session is an interesting problem in a lot of ways. I think really what it comes down to is that we are at the cusp point of establishing a really decent theoretical model about where intelligence should go, how it should operate, and how it fits in with the rest of society. You know, we look at uh, what Jim was saying in large parts of it, and it really does cross all the boundaries inside a society. Let's bring intelligence out of the back rooms and let's bring it into a public discussion. Mark, I think that's exactly it. Although people like ourselves and guys like Jim Cox were thinking about this before Edward Snowden, what Edward Snowden has done for us, he has taken intelligence out of the back room and he has put it literally onto the world stage. Where this all go isn't clear yet. We've seen Mr. Obama in his first response, but I think there's a lot more discussion to come. And at the end of the day, I think that's a good thing. Okay, so having everything out in the open is a good thing. Tom, have you got any idea on where we go from here? Well, Abby, where are we going with the next podcast? I'd like to look at a number of issues. For instance, our economic theories that we use to guide ourselves right now are exhausted. They're based on infinite growth and debt. Our political institutions we use to drive these things, such as the EU, the IMF, the World Bank, and even NATO, are severely worn. The nation-state structure, which we built after World War I and World War II, is perhaps due to be reassessed. If you look at Yugoslavia, Syria, Libya, Iran, Iraq, and also if you look at other things such as China and even the European Union itself. These things are exhausted collectively. Interestingly, this is occurring at a time when our political elites are both ethically and intellectually challenged. I think the future holds either a short period of violent chaos or a long period of painful adjustment. Well, Tom, much as I don't want to try and predict the future because, you know, I'm not an oracle in that sense, uh, let me just point out a couple of things. Everything you've talked about, every structure you've talked about there is actually a story that we tell ourselves. Our political system, our economic theories, and, you know, as Abby knows, I describe theories as storytelling devices. So let's look at that in terms of storytelling devices. How do the stories we tell ourselves about where we will go affect how we are going to get there? And this is why the next session is going to focus in on the uses and abuses of historical analogs in policy debates. Broken Mirrors. This has been Broken Mirrors, Episode 5, The Operation of Intelligence in a Democracy, for January 2014, a podcast covering issues in the intelligence, security, and military communities. For much more information about this episode and the series, please visit brokenmirrors.ca. To view the show notes, leave a comment and listen to the extended material. Follow us on Google Plus and Facebook, and if you enjoyed the episode, 
Please remember to plus one and like us there. The Descent and Dangerous are compositions generously provided by Kevin MacLeod through Incompetech.com. Our thanks to our guest, Jim Cox of the CMIA. This episode of Broken Mirrors was written and presented by our host and executive producer, Mark Tyrrell, and our co-host, Tom Quiggin. Producer, Tim Riley. Intern producer, Avi Baruch. And associate producer, Stephanie Bob. This podcast is copyright 2014, Broken Mirror Studios, and is released under Creative Commons. Attribution, non-commercial, no derivative works, 2.5 Canada license. For Broken Mirrors, I'm Donna Moore. Thank you.